Welcome to the public morality. Racial capitalism describes the process of extracting social and economic value from a person of a different racial identity, typically a person of color. However, a person of any race might engage in racial capitalism as might an institution dominated by one particular race. How has racial capitalism manifested in America throughout its history? Is it a bygone era or does it still maintain an unsavory role in the American narrative? Joining us to discuss racial capitalism is Professor Walter Johnson. Professor Johnson is a history professor at Harvard University. Professor Walter Johnson, welcome to the public morality. All right, thank you for having me. I would like to frame this conversation uh, to begin with, with, with a two-part question. First, how do you define racial capitalism and how significant is using that phrase in your view when understanding America's economic trajectory? Um, I think that the thing with racial capitalism is that it is a way of understanding a process. And so for me, it is the, um, the way that I believe that um, the intellectual, political, and cultural history of racial categories, the social history of racial categories, is inextricable from the history of capitalism. From the moment of, um, well, really, you, you could say probably from the moment of Columbus's arrival on Hispaniola from the moment of the new world and through the slave trade. And um, so what, what I, well, we could talk, we could talk more about that. Um, how important do I think it is? I think it's enormously important um, because I think that um, neither the model of racism is in the nation's DNA, nor the model of um, our common economic interests bind us together over and against any assertion of difference. I don't think either one of those models is serving the left very well. And so I think a more complicated um, accounting of the way that uh, white supremacy, empire and capitalism have been interrelated over the history of the United States is gonna help us understand our predicament a little bit more a little bit better, more acutely, um, and ultimately more effectively. Now, now I know, I know you're, you're a professional historian, which primarily has you glancing backwards. But if you consider racial capitalism in a 21st century context, does that definition also extend beyond the contours of race? I mean, does it, does it apply to gender? Does it apply in, in, in other areas that, of, of groups that have been historically othered? Yes. So what, what, I, what I'd want to say about that is, is I, don't, I don't think it, it maybe always works to think about um, racial hierarchy and derogation and gender sexual hierarchy and derogation as um, analogically related in the sense that I think that it makes sense for us to try to destabilize and undermine categories around gender and sexuality in a way that, that doesn't um, translate directly to categories around race, right? And so that's where you get the, you know, the, the catastrophe of um, Rachel Dolezal and the notion of trans uh, racialism is through an overgeneralization of one approach to another problem. 
Um, I think, however, uh, behind your question, you know, the, the, there's absolutely, absolutely that it is impossible to talk about the reproduction of racial hierarchy and racial categories over time without talking about the regulation of gender and sexuality. Likewise, it is impossible to talk about the governance, uh, the, 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 about capitalist society without talking about the governance of households, without talking about um, work that, that women have done for, for centuries that has gone unmarked as work, without talking about the way that family, lin family lineage, the idea of passing some, something on to a family is actually a primary motive for accumulation. And so, um, you know, there, there are people, and, and I think that they are, um, they're right, really, who think, who, who argue that we should be talking about um, racial sexual capitalism, race gender capitalism. And, and I, I think that is, you know, at root um, what we are talking about. Uh, America, particularly in its fledgling uh, stages, um, operated on two, do and two dominant schools of thought. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically about the enslavement of African uh, descendants and the systematic annihilation of Native Americans. Talk about those you would and in, 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 in their intersection in, in this larger thing called racial capitalism. Yeah, well, they're uh, inextricable from one another. And I think that the way that I would try to convince a skeptic that we are from the very beginning talking about racial capitalism is talk about the fact that the Virginia company, the company that um, you know, the settler colonial company in Virginia is a joint stock company. It is a, um, people are investing money in the Virginia money, in the Virginia company in order to get a return on that money. And what um, ends up happening in Virginia is um, inaugurates what ends up happening throughout North America, which is an intertwined process of um, extermination, empire and, uh, and enslavement. Um, the Royal African Company is a joint stock company, you know? And, and so, so for me, from the very beginning in North America, you're looking at a process by which joint stock companies are turning the landscape into property, i.e. into capital and are importing through joint stock companies, um, human beings to, to work the land. Now, if we, if we think about that just for a second more, one thing we recognize is that enslaved people in North America were both capital and labor, right? Capital and labor inhabited, you know, these economic categories were indistinguishable in slavery in many ways. And that then what that says to me is, well, we, we need to, to take that moment, we need to take that moment to, to rethink all of our categories, right? To rethink a history that, that has been told one way, and yet the categories that we use where we think of capital and labor as separate things, um, they, they, they can't even describe this foundational moment. That's, and so that's again, where I would come back to 
the notion of racial capitalism, which is a product in the words of, of Cedric Robinson, who wrote Black Marxism, which is a, um, a kind of a foundational text for, for a lot of us. We need to begin with the renaming of things. We need to begin by rethinking things that we've taken for granted. So when one considers uh, uh, westward expansion, and we're gonna talk about Jefferson in a minute, but just the notion of westward expansion, and the American trajectory, were the aims of, say, the North in tension with those of the South in the context of racial capitalism? And if so, could you explain? Yes, I mean, they're, they're different aims. So the, the first thing I'd say is that we're capable of imagining fractions of capital at odds with one another today, right? We're capable of imagining old media at odds with new media, for instance. And I think that's the way that we should think about um, the, the coming of the Civil War, so to speak, is two different racial capitalist projects, two different imperial projects contending with one another. The Southern Project, which I wrote about at some length you know, a, a while ago, is one that is predicated upon slavery and its extension. And the, the, the you know, there's, there's a complicated argument that I made in my second book about the way that the capitalist imperatives of the cotton market produce soil exhaustion, and then the soil exhaustion leads to a need to move west, right? Um, the, the, the westward push in the north is different because it is on the whole, I think the center of gravity of the westward push in the union or in the north or in the um, free soil party, the Republican party, the party of Lincoln is a white supremacist imperialist anti-slavery. Now they are not anti-slavery because they are racial utopian Democrats in any sense. They are anti-slavery because they are, they, they do not believe that white labor should have to compete with enslaved labor or the labor of free people of color. And so what you see in the political thought of the, those who become the backbone of the Republican party is, is what's called free soil thought. Let's take Indian land, but we're going to fill up Indian land with white settlers. Indeed, there are many proposals to simply take the public domain of the United States, which is to say the land that has been taken by force from Native Americans and distribute it to white people. And within that movement, there are very, very few who see a place for, for free Black people. In, in the upper Midwest. So you have two kinds of settler colonial projects, which each, each of which is um, dependent upon empire, dependent upon the conversion of the public domain in, into private property, dependent upon um, Indian removal and extermination as a foundation for white economic flourishing, one of which is also dependent upon slavery, and one of which is um, exclusionist, removalist, and in some iteration, genocidal in relationship to free people of color. No, no, when you, when, 
it, when you talk about the North, I, I was thinking that um, you had a number of pieces of legislation um, where you where some might argue that people were doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And I'm thinking, like, for one example, although this one didn't pass, would you include the Wilmot proviso in that kind of, of formula? Because that's often talked about as an anti-slavery piece of legislation. Yeah, I, th I think that, that it, it, I think what we need to do, honestly, if we're going to understand the role of empire in American history is to take a much more critical view of the history of that sort of anti-slavery. And so um, the Wilmot Proviso is often understood as simply a measure which is anti-slavery. Um, the, the white nationalist dimension of the Wilmot Proviso and of many of these other policies and politicians is less frequently understood. And so one of the things I've tried to do in, in my most recent book and in my thinking more generally is to reimagine um, the, the history of the sectional struggle with a particular focus um, on empire, a particular focus on the history of the Midwest and, and a particular focus on anti-slavery white supremacy. So that's, that's a, a perfect example. And I, I would even say, you know, I, I've become interested uh, increasingly in relationship to some work I'm trying to do on John Brown in the far, far left of American politics in the 19th century. And the far left of American politics, well, the far left of, of politics among white people in the 19th century is largely concerned with land reform. And what they're talking about is, is taking the public domain and distributing it to the people. But of course, even that vision is hemmed in with empire. It is structured in dominance. It, it's, it's not critical of the material um, foundation of its own possibility in relationship to the empire and the taking of land. So I think that this, this for me is a, um, a very, very big problem at the heart of a lot of our existing historical accounts. Um, and, you know, in, in a way that's demoralizing um, and in a way it's it's exciting because people are going to have to think of, of new arguments and new approaches. And, you know, that's that's on the whole a good thing, I think. Well, Professor Johnson, before we go further, let me just say that um, we we at the Public Morality pride ourselves in having um judicious conversation um, with, with academics and, 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 and activists and, uh, and, and critical thinkers. But at the same time, we're also a bastion of the shameless plug. So you, you've talked about one of your books, your recent book. Please give us the titles of these books. And the, the shameless plug is welcome here on the Pub Growl. Oh, that's good because I'm, I'm actually not known for being judicious. So I'll just have to... <laughs> I just have to go down on the on the shameless plug sort of thing. So the book that I was talking about that talks about the imperial vision of American slavery um, was published in 2013, and that's called River of Dark Dreams. Um, my more recent book is called The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. And that was just published last year. And it and and the central problem of that book really is to think through. Um, the history of the United States and the history of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm from I'm from Missouri originally, 
um, in light of the relationship of U.S. imperialism to anti-Blackness. So to try and think about those things together. And that's, that's um, part of the work that I try to do within the term racial capitalism. And, and with our discussion uh, uh, about westward expansion, uh, we really can't have that conversation without some discussion about Thomas Jefferson. How does the enigma that is Jefferson, and I'm thinking from his critique on the slave trade that was edited out of the Declaration of Independence to the Louisiana Purchase that spawned the Lewis and Clark expedition, how do those things, you can take, take them independently, factor in this larger racial capitalist critique? Um, you know, I, I think in a way, the position that I was describing, which is a, a black removalist imperialist position, one could argue that that position has, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's, it's safe to say that it begins with, but it has a very, artic, it has a very, very clear um, articulation in Jefferson. Notes on the state of Virginia, among other things, is a colonizationist text. It is a text which advocates the um, removal of free people of color from the United States of America to Africa. And it does so in a chapter which is about state building. And so, you know, it does so in a chapter that's about public schools and bridges and building infrastructure and getting rid of free people of color. And so, so it is, you know, it is fundamentally then a kind of a white nationalist version of, of governance. Now, Jefferson, um, among other things, imagines the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 as a vast receptacle for free people of color. I, I'm, I'm sorry, as a vast receptacle for Native Americans, for people who are going to be removed from um, the what historians call the cis Mississippi West, meaning the this side of the Mississippi West. So places like say Kentucky, um, who are going to be pushed across the Mississippi. And so in Jefferson, um, uh, is a is a combination of the different sorts of removalism that I argue come to uh, characterize the history of the Midwest. As you point out, the you know the the sponsor of the Lewis and Clark expedition, um, which has a huge amount to do both with the the history of St. Louis, um, but also with the beginnings of the kind of trans Mississippi Western um, imperial project. You know, we, we've talked about uh, speaking with Harvard professor Walter Johnson about the about racial capitalism. Professor Johnson, we've talked um, largely uh, racial capitalism in binary terms, in terms of its impact uh, of empire and, and, and slavery and, and, and annihilation of Native Americans. But how does racial capitalism, in your view, how has it impacted those who are not African-American or Native American, or as, as you say, largely white? 
Fantastic. So, what, so, so I want to say a couple of things in relationship to that. One of the things that I am really insistent on trying to argue is to think about the history of racial capitalism as being dynamic and dialectical, which is to say that over time, different sorts of economic relationships are justified and shaped through different characterizations and derogations and manipulations and, and, and violence towards um, marginalized, imperialized, racialized populations. But the question that you ask is really, really essential, right? Be because if what we're going to insist upon is that racial capitalism is the analytical framework through which we need to confront the current moment, then we immediately have a problem, right? And that problem is, well, how do you explain the derogation, exploitation, marginalization of um, working white people, working class and poor white people? So it, it's a complicated argument, but the way that, that, that I want to think about it is, is, is well, let me, let me just give you an example to help us think this through. In the weeks after Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, there was a white kid shot in Fresno, California. His first name was Dylan. I can't right now recall. And, I, and you know, in a way, I, I feel like I, sh I should, you know, just pause and apologize for not being able to remember his last name right now. Shot by the police. And in the aftermath of that, his friends tried to bring attention to that shooting, which was egregious and not justifiable under even the broadest construction of justifiable by saying white lives matter. And in so doing, I think they kind of fell through an ideological hole because they weren't like, they weren't trying to say, um, it, it wasn't a white nationalist claim. They were merely trying to understand, well, our friend also got shot by the police and he was white. And so it's not really part of black lives matter. And yet it seems related. And what I think is really, really important is for us to try to understand how that is related. And here is the way that I would want us to understand that. The tools that were pioneered and justified and continue to be justified in relationship to a hypertrophic fear of African-Americans in our society and a um, reactionary defense of all forms of property and privilege in our society are generally and gradually generalized to the population as a whole. And so it may be that city governments and that, that, that polities in the United States are willing to overfund the police and are willing to put up with abuse and are willing to overarm the police and, and allow these insane programs of militarization and the notion of the warrior cop and all this other stuff because they fear for their own property or because they fear African-Americans or, or that, that sort of symbolic threat that inhabits a lot of our, our culture around African-Americans and particularly African-American men. 
But eventually, when you have overarmed, overprivileged, over, you know, people without impunity policing the society, everybody gets drawn into that. And so that's the type of argument that, you know, so that's an example of how I want to make an argument that a, a nexus of race and capitalism that begins with white supremacy comes around to disadvantage people in general. The classic version of this argument is W.E.B. Du Bois um, in Black Reconstruction in 1935, where he talks about the way that after the Civil War, the working and poor white people of the South had an opportunity to join in a revolutionary alliance with the freed people, with the former slaves, and to govern and transform society and economy in the image of poor and working people, black and white. And instead they gave into the temptations of racial rule and they supported governments that in the end, you know, disenfranchised poor white people just along with, you know, along with, with poor black people that um, destroyed the public sector that destroyed hospitals that had been built during reconstruction, public schools, different sorts of programs of um, social support um, that, that were helping um, poor white people as well as poor black people. So that's, you know, that, that for me is the nexus of where I would want to, to make that argument. I believe the young man you were referring to in 2016 shooting was, the last name was, uh, his name was Dylan Noble, I believe. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I, you know, I, I think it, you know, I, I appreciate that on both a empirical and a ethical level to get his name right. One of the things uh, I, I think that, uh, that, that we can't ignore is that when, when we consider racial capitalism in America, it's, it's easy for us to see say the original draft of the constitution with its three-fifths compromise and its fugitive slave um, laws that sort of, uh, to be charitable, gives the institution of slavery constitutional legitimacy. Um, but there were other areas where racial capitalism is backed either overtly or tangentially by the federal government. Could you talk about some of those that were significant? Oh yeah, well, I mean, you, you can, you know, th those are those are fantastic. But if you think about the um, the the Northwest Ordinance, which is again one of these things that is understood to be a um, understood to be anti-slavery, has within it a set of mechanisms that become the governing mechanisms in the United States for the incorporation of new territory. So that is a foundationally imperialist, imperialist vision, right? Because who is in that, quote, new territory at the moment of the Northwest Ordinance of the Constitution? Well, Native Americans, right? So, so, so we, we can just start again with that. I try to follow that up um, through the history of slavery, through the history of the free soil movement, um, into the 20th century. I think that there has been a... Um, there's been a lot of attention recently on um, practices like redlining, which is a um, 
a federally, I guess you would say a federally mandated um, program for loans given through the um, through the FHA, through, through, through loan guarantees given through the um, Federal Housing Agency. Um, I think that we could see the, the housing legislation of 1849, I'm sorry, 1949, um, which culminated in a kind of a process by which white people were um, to be housed in federally subsidized suburbs, uh, that they would commute into cities along federally um, sponsored interstate highways, African-Americans in public housing in um, downtown areas. Those were all, all federal programs. I think that the politics um, that characterize our own world today are um, much more politics of abandonment um, of what the geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls the anti-state state. And by that, I mean that I think what we see in our world today in the United States is an effort on the part of both state actors and um, independent kind of entrepreneurs to make money off of people who have been made surplus from the standpoint of capitalist production. So if I think about North St. Louis, or I think about North St. Louis County, where, where I've done my most recent work, they're, 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 nobody's really trying to exploit people for low wage work in, in these areas because they're not, they're not interested in making money off them as low wage employees. They're interested in making money off them through payday loans or through excessive fines and fees or ultimately through their incarceration in, um, in facilities that are built in the rural areas of states like Missouri or New York or the two that I know the best, California, um, which are then, you know, th there's an economic transfer that occurs through mass incarceration. That is an economic transfer from taxpayers to rural working class and poor white people who build the prisons, become the prison guards, participate in the provisioning, right? So there's, there's actually a, a state level economy to that. And that's, um, you know, that, that I think is, is the current form. I mean, there, there are, one of the things I try to track in the, in the book is, is about a kind of what, what I see as in the history of St. Louis, a, a series of repetitions around removal the driving out of African-Americans, each one of which has a different kind of mode of economic, social control and of extraction. So that, that's again, what I'm trying to get up at about the kind of the changing same of racial capitalism, the way that the, the racism is, there's always racism, but it's never the same racism. And there's always capitalism, but it's never the same capitalism, and they change in relationship to one another. Uh, you know, one of the things about the American narrative, uh, we, when we, we look at our history, America loves to uh, tout its uh, ability to govern based on its ability to compromise. Uh, my question to you, sir, um, has there ever been a compromise involving racial capitalism where racial capitalism was not the ultimate beneficiary? 
Uh, you know, I say to my students, actually, uh, in the 19th century lecture course that I teach, which involves the Compromise of 1820, the Compromise of 1850, and the Compromise of 1877, I say that when you hear the word compromise in American history, that means that the wealthy white people win, right? That's what compromise has met, meant in our history. And so, no, I do not, I, I don't think so. I think that, that um, you know, each one of those led to um, an ex both an expansion and an intensification of um, imperialism, um, white supremacy and, and capitalist extraction. So no, I'm still waiting for the, I'm still waiting for the good compromise. Part of, part of my being injudicious is not being a particularly compromise oriented person. Uh, you mentioned eight, the Compromise of 1820s. I'm assuming you're referring to the Missouri Compromise, 1877, Hayes Children. Uh, spend a little time, though, talking about that Compromise of 1850. That one kind of gets glossed over in civics class. Yeah, well, well so the, the Compromise of 1850 is a compromise that emerges, first of all, out of the um, U.S.-Mexico War. So it emerges um, at at the juncture of um, imperialism and the future of slavery. And it is a, the, the question that comes out is, well, how much of this land that has been conquered from, um, from Mexico in the US-Mexico war, which basically is today, I, I think is two thirds of the, you know, the area of the continental United States. So from Texas all the way up to, to Washington in a kind of a diagonal line across the across the map. Um, how's that going to be governed in relationship to slavery? And that that leads to this gigantic conflict and eventually a compromise. Um, and the the compromise is one that imagines an expansive future from slavery from you know texas to the pacific coast but um uh, you know on the basis of um what they call popular sovereignty and what that means is that a territory is going to vote on um whether or not the um you know whether or not a state comes in as uh, slave or free that sets up then a kind of a land rush and so again um, the way that I see that is as the framework for a conflict between two imperial and expansive um, white nationalist projects, one based upon the idea of slavery and one based upon the idea of free labor, which should be understood immediately and always as in including a very strong element of black exclusion. You, you, you've used a term here a couple of times and I, I'd like to have you um, expand on it. Uh, and you've tied racial capitalism as a tenet of empire. For those yeah. may not see America as an empire, especially in its inception, explain if you would why you find empire to be the, an appropriate term. Yes, yeah, so, so there was a, um, you know, there was a school 
in American history that the United States was expansionist without being imperialist, which means that, you know, basically as far as I could tell, the argument was that anything that, that happens on land is simply expansionist and anything that happens overseas is imperialist. That leaves out a large history of United States military economic aspirations overseas, okay? But my, you know, my basic feeling is, is that that is a distinction that has been um, invented and maintained to, to um, hold up the notion of American exceptionalism to hold up the notion that the United States is a nation that has a unique history and purpose in the world. And that when the United States seeks to expand or to um, exercise its influence, it does so in the name of a higher good. I, you know, I, the way that I would test that proposition is by imagining it from the standpoint of the Cherokee or from the standpoint of the Osage or the Sioux, right? Those are nations which exist in North America. And if we are gonna just make the basic, just the basic, basic kind of historical gesture of imagining them as nations, then we have to understand the quote, the quote, expansion of the United States as imperial, as a displacement of existing nations and a expropriation of the places and resources that they had controlled. Right. So, I, you know, I, I kind of insist on that from from the jump, as they say. Uh, I'm wondering, given your last answer, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the United States, but I'm, I'm going to digress slightly. When a lot of African countries, when they overthrew the colonial exploits of Europe and, and, and um, governed themselves, the tenets of colonialism remained. Like the governing didn't really change. The, and, and I'm wondering, does the United States, in your view, fall into fell to a, a similar paradigm, even though they got rid of Great Britain, the notion of, of, of being Great Britain-like remained in their politics, uh, in their motivations. Yes. I, I mean, I, I think it's a fantastic question because it recognizes something that my original answer did not, which is that the United States is a post-colonial empire. And I, th I think that um, indeed, I would say that probably the idea of racial capitalism would be one that would help us understand those continuities over time, those continuities beyond, you know, that, that run right through 1776, um, that in, in a way that the notion of, um, 1776 as a revolutionary break does not help us fully understand. How do you assess the 1619 project uh, in its attempt to address the impact of racial capitalism, but it almost exclusively through the lens of slavery? There you go. 
I mean, you, you just assessed it exactly the way that I would. I, I think that it is, you know, like, like anything, I guess, um, as a way of seeing, the 1619 Project helps us re-see the entirety of American history in a way that is very powerful. At the very same time, it occludes um, a lot of American history that I think it is absolutely essential that we think about. And that is particularly, number one, the history of empire, but number two, the history of a kind of a dialectical and changing relationship between racial categories and capitalism, right? And so I think that the mode of the 1619 Project, which is really challenging, is to demonstrate origins of current practices in slavery. What's interesting to me, or what, what the next step for me is to actually track that out, to track out those relationships. And I think, to be honest with you, the, the 1619 Project is a little bit reflective of a kind of American exceptionalism of its own. There's an Afro-exceptionalism, which is to say that African-Americans are the people who have most um, clearly lived out the promise of the, 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 the essence of American values. And there is a tacit um, agreement with the idea that those American values should be universal values. And, um, you know, I, I might even agree along with David Walker or along with Frederick Douglass with the first exceptionalism. The notion that American values are exceptional in world history and should be universal values, I think, has done a great deal of harm over its run. And so that's where I'd, I'd really start to depart. So in that, in that context, um, I, think I, already I think I have an idea of, of, of what your reaction is going to be. But I would be remiss having mentioned the 1619 Project that I didn't also uh, reference the 1776 Commission, um, sort of hurriedly created to refute the 1619 Project. And when you think about it, both of those, does it, whether intentionally or unintentionally, take us down the rabbit hole of arrested development and that it has us arguing about things that it misses the critical pieces of the American narrative? That's clear to you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so the existence of the 1776 project and you my knowledge. That, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said you can't even say the term with, with a straight face. So go oh, ahead. that's right. I mean, just just knowing that it was there was one of the things that that I think helped me remember to keep myself my my mouth shut about the 1619 project, which is on the whole a lot better a lot more honest, a lot more truth telling. But I think you are 100% right that we are again having a debate that is happening within, incised, within an incised field that's happening without a forthright acknowledgement of imperialism. And I think that once we start to think about, we're gonna have to have some very, very vexing conversations. Right. If we start to imagine, if we start to really, really take seriously the idea that comes out of 
Native American studies, that land in North America is stolen land, then a lot of our narratives of freedom or equality that focus on property are going to become a lot more complicated, right? That's just a, a single example. And so, and, and that's where I say that I think that we are at the beginning of a really exciting, but also really disorienting conversation about um, the, the relationship between the history of ideas of freedom in the United States and actual practices of human emancipation. And I think that what we're going to see is that freedom in the United States has um, been foreshortened. It's not the same thing as human emancipation, and it has been over-identified with um, property holding. You just reminded me, I, I um, teach uh, an online civics course on Mondays, Monday evenings. And one of the things we talked about last night, we, and I, I mentioned to the class that being anti-slavery did not make one pro-equality. So right. the, the, those two are those two are not the same. And and to that end, sir, I'm just wondering when you think about the long history of racial capitalism, how dependent um, up to the present moment has the American economy been? on a cheap and exploitable labor force? Uh, it, it, it's, it's inextricable from that and always has been. I mean, so, so uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts it this way. Capitalism requires exploitation, right? Exploitation is justified by difference. And so I think that, you know, we have been having a conversation um, basically hemmed in by the limits of the 19th century economy and the early industrial economy. But all of um, the history of capital flight in the um, 20th century and 21st century is a history of money in search of more favorable sites of investment. Well, what makes a site of investment more favorable? Well, maybe it's less regulated as far as the environmental protections. Maybe it's less regulated as far as labor. Maybe labor is more, um, is less organized. Maybe it's easier to extract things from, from states. Well, all of those factors um, have been historically produced out of the past history of, of uh, global hierarchy and empire. So yeah, I, I see that as an ongoing, um, although ever-changing story. What, what, what with, that, with that said, um, in an, obviously in an ideal society, um, racial capitalism, in my view, my words, would not occur. Uh, but given the American narrative, um, are, are we like just past the point to where racial capitalism is almost like the fluoride in the drinking water? Well, you, you know, I, I must admit that there are moments um, where I feel like all of our politics are too little, too late. 
and there are moments where I um, mourn for my for my children, for my principles, for the world. Um, I guess the way that I try to steady myself in those moments is I try to think about the way that Cornell West talks about hope as a discipline, right? Optimism. Optimism is the belief that things are going to get better. Hope is the discipline to keep on fighting for them to get better, even amidst, um, you know, the, even, even amidst the kind of toxic air of pollution and climate change and racial capitalism that, that, as you suggest, kind of has infiltrated every aspect of our lives. And, and so it's, it's at that moment then that, that I see and remember all of the different kinds of projects around us that are going on that, that um, contest the standing order. And some of them contest the standing order simply by ignoring it, right? Some of them contest it by, by confronting it. And some of them are projects of mutual support and uh, mutual aid and, and living in a different way that, that are just, you know, local projects that I know about in St. Louis or in, in Jackson, Mississippi, where, where people are just, they're just starting in, in with different kinds of ways of living. They're, they're living out fragments of the future. Um, and that's, that's the kind of thing that I use to steady myself when I start to, start to get too um, isolated in my own despair, you know, to not be, you know, to be a little bit melodramatic about the whole thing. Professor Walter Johnson. Harvard University, sir, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Public Morality. Uh, your insight and wisdom, much appreciated, sir. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, for all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.